Welcome to Songs and Tales, a podcast where we delve too greedily and too deep into the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Clara. And I'm Aaron. And we will be the corny swan boats that guide you on this journey. Beautiful, beautiful swan boats. Man, Tolkien, what are you doing? A truly strange image from a truly strange book that is only getting stranger. So... Yeah, in the three chapters that we read for today of the Silmarillion, chapters four, five, and six, we do meet some swan boats. (laughs) We also meet some very important characters, and that's basically all that happens in chapters four, five, and six. Um, Chapter four of Thingol and Melian is about how Thingol meets Melian and sort of disappears for a really long time and starts a very important lineage for us. We get a lot of familiar names out of the marriage and children that are produced in that marriage of Thingol and Melian. Chapter five is of Eldamar and the princes of the Eldaliae. This is about more characters that will become important. Also the sundering of the elves, how some elves stayed in Middle-earth, how some went to Valinor, how some kind of went part of the way to mm-hmm. Valinor, and how some essentially got left behind. They didn't intend to stay, but they missed their ship literally and just ended up kind of stuck in Middle-earth. And then in chapter six of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor, that's about what happens. Feanor is born, Melkor is unchained. And let me tell you, he's not happy. There's a lot of light imagery in these couple chapters. And I think it's really important that we kind of nail down what the light is because it's the light of the trees in the Silmarillion, like in, in, sorry, it's the light of the trees in the Silmarils that are so important. And so I think that if we don't understand why that light is fundamentally important to kind of the world of the Silmarillion, it's hard to understand why the Silmarils are so important themselves. So I think I want to take some time and just talk about this um, light of Arda, which is the heavenly light from the trees and kind of how it manifests in different ways and what it does in those manifestations. So in chapter five, there's this really beautiful image. I'm going to just read this passage. From the west, the light of the trees fell upon it, and its shadow lay ever eastward. And to the east, it looked towards the bay of Alvenholm and the lonely isle and the shadowy seas. Then through the Calicaria, the pass of light, the radiance of the blessed realm streamed forth, kindling the dark waves to silver and gold, and it touched the lonely isle, and its western shore grew green and fair, there bloomed the first flowers that ever were east of the mountains of Amman. Tolkien talks about light kind of vaguely. He doesn't ever say that light is super symbolic because he's pretty clear that like the symbolism of light is, is well known, right? Like heavenly light is kind of a pretty traditional image. But he does say this, which I think is is interesting in his letters he kind of makes this little like yeah I'm not going to talk about light because everybody talks about light and like it's not that important but then he says in a little footnote in his own letter quote the light of Valinor derived from light before any fall is the light of art undivorced from reason that sees things both scientifically or philosophically and imaginatively or subcreatively and says that they are good as beautiful. The light of sun is derived from the trees only after they are sullied by evil. You have a very thoughtful look on your face. Mm. Like you had something to say. Yeah, because I I guess I'm thinking about, I'm still hung up on this idea of art undivorced from reason. That's looking at something both scientifically and imaginatively. Because so much of what, we've seen up to this point is more on the imaginative like mm-hmm. you know the creative process in this world is not one that i would say is is necessarily stemming from 
reason as we understand in scientific terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we get hints that Olivatar has some sort of, I guess he's saying it philosophically, I suppose, but he has some sort of like overarching plan, but we don't have access to that. So what we're seeing is more the subcreative side, which is the imaginative. So it's just interesting to me that like he's setting up this sort of fall that, that severs art and reason science and reason. And it's, it's sort of like the mind body split too. It's this mm-hmm. unnatural division. I, I don't know what Tolkien's thoughts are on the Cartesian split, but I imagine it's something similar, like this idea that somehow something happened that, that pulls these two things apart that should really be together and that need to be together. And I'm thinking too, about how, you know, it, does that mean that evil, the primary sort of function of evil in this work is, is that, severance is that sort of the, mm-hmm. the origin point rather than thinking of just melkor as sort of the origin point of evil is, is Tolkien getting us to think about how it's actually much more about like a perspective shift or a frame of mind shift that once you start seeing the world in this sort of split way that's when you allow for evil to sort of enter into the world when you're mm-hmm. only seeing it either scientifically or creatively or only seeing it imaginatively or philosophically um, rather than sort of blending because he brings up the blending of the lights too mm-hmm. the two lights again so that seems yeah. very important that there's yeah. this sort of it's the mingling. the mingling right that is the most important so i mean there seems to be this concerted effort to to focus our attention as readers on the distinction between wholeness and and fracture mm-hmm. right the elves are sundered everything's about split mm-hmm. it's becoming split and broken and to the extent that it, it it's also can't be put back together again like everything that's I mean, he used the word sullied too, right? There's this way once something's sullied, it means it can't be recovered. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me how this creation myth, the fall spins out over a much greater period than we have Mm -hmm. in Genesis, where we can identify a specific instance. Yeah. It's a long time coming, this one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like it reverberates, right? It's not just giving into a single moment. It, It keeps sort of cascading into these other actions that, yeah, Keep making which will, worse, which right, we will see. It's a it's a pretty aggressive. I mean, the fall is pretty big, and then yeah, it, it causes this huge chain. Essentially, it's just a huge chain of events that mm-hmm. set up like the course of the rest of the the book with a, a you know a lot of sadness. I think this is one of the only parts of this book that feels hopeful, and even then, Tolkien still is yeah like warning us there are kind of like signposts within these chapters that are like bad things are going to happen you know he talks about the noon it's the noontide of Valinor you know this beautiful time when the elves were living there they were creating they were you know jiving with the with the uh, Valar you know everyone was getting along very swimmingly and even then Tolkien's like something really bad is gonna Mm -hmm. happen it also is like a synecdoche for human history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it becomes a way to think of, I mean, I can't help but think of sort of his, we talked about him being sort of a modern in the past. And I think in some ways his conception of history is where he's closest to modernism. This idea of sort of history being a, a series of catastrophes that you can mm-hmm. kind of only observe, essentially you can observe it and you just sort of see it kind of like piling up and piling up and you can, identify it but there is sort of this helplessness or this fadedness to it and i know Mm -hmm. we talked about the word doom last time you mentioned doom and fate and yeah that that seems to be sort of the the guiding metaphor guiding symbol for this history that we're being right it's like it is it is unavoidable in a Mm -hmm. way you know it's it's faded it's it's doomed it's been judged and you get that sense i think because this is written like a history this writer writer Tolkien but his I don't know persona uh, yeah 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 I mean right whoever this chronicler is right is has that awareness that like these catastrophes have happened but then it makes you wonder were they doomed like who's saying this right is it Mm -hmm. actually that they were fated to happen or is it because this person now has this knowledge Mm -hmm. that these things did happen that they can editorialize and say like it was going to happen this way i think we might we might be going down a very complicated path uh, well, no, I, I think i mean i think in a lot of ways that's that 
the idea is central to understanding this book. Like what kind of a history are you being given? And I, I, what you're saying is I hadn't thought of it in that particular way, but yeah, absolutely. Like how much can we, how much is sort of this author figure? Yeah. How much can we believe? I mean, yeah. Or how much can we write, understand about like the inevitability of everything we're being shown? I think that's an excellent question right. that you're asking. I mean, it's not a, you know, Tolkien is saying this is a mythology, this is a mythology, but then it's written like a history, Mm -hmm. you know, he Mm -hmm. says in his letters that this is the history of the elves. So is it a history or is it a mythology? Because those are very different things. Yeah, because I think it helps us get at something a little bit more concrete than maybe what we've been circling around thus Mm -hmm. far, which is sort of this structure of myth. And I think you're right to say that we see myth and history as two separate spheres, but I think here they the Venn diagram is very much a circle, <laughs> <laughs> and which is, I think was why we both have been kind of struggling to place this and, and Tolkien's own sort of commentary on it is often less than helpful. Oh, well, yeah. You know. I mean, even this quote about the light, you're like, well, what does, I mean, now I have to parse out this. Give me an answer. <laughs> it's also, it's also kind of a weird answer like what is it like you said what does it mean for this world if like the fall was a sundering of science from art art and then there's so like Tolkien himself had so much kind of animosity towards science Mm -hmm. and scientific advancement Mm -hmm. so like is the sundering mean that like one like art is in the camp of good now and science is now in the camp of evil like are they just split and then they exist as two separate things or do they split and then like exist mm-hmm. within like the spheres of good and evil? The elves yeah. who are, you know, fundamentally more good than evil and the Valinor who are good, like they exist in the world of creativity, whereas Melkor and Sauron and all the big baddies exist in the world of science. I think it goes back to what we talked about last week, that the difference between being a creator and a maker mm-hmm. too, like oh, this is yeah. that same division, right? Like if you're artistic, you're a creator, hence the sub-creator. Whereas if you're a maker, you're just an imitator. Mm-hmm. And, and in the process of imitating, you diminish whatever it is that was originally there. So I, I think there is, I think that's part of his sort of anti, I don't know, I hesitate to say like Luddite, but he is anti, like he doesn't see technology as sort of the, the sign of progress that I think was common in the 20th century, mm-hmm. like technological advance was, was seen as pro- was synonymous with progress, despite all the ways in which, you know, technology was horrible in the 20th century. And, and I think right. Tolkien is very much reacting against that and saying, well, no, that the measure of progress is art is our cultural traditions. It's language. It's, the things we create. And I mean, that's, that's a problematic view too. I don't want to say that either of these kind of assumptions are, are necessarily good, but it, well, maybe that's the thing. Like both those views, both those views on their own are problematic. Mm-hmm. It's like the, is like the correct view, a little mm-hmm. bit of both. And is that what Tolkien's like trying to say with kind of this heavenly, heavenly light as being like the marriage of these two things? I, I don't know because we never really see it in those terms i don't think Mm-mm. i mean we just see the light like yeah. yeah but i guess i guess to kind of circle back to like this light on this you know mm. island like we see what the light creates i guess and maybe that's kind of yeah. where we see it is in like the creation that comes out of just even just the light touching the side of an island and making flowers bloom mm-hmm and then like the elves once they get to Valinor like being able to tap into these very like creative parts of their being and become perf- like prime sub creators almost right yeah yeah right because they're both artists and craftsmen mm-hmm. which is a which is a word i don't think we've seen before but he talks about craft a lot in these chapters mm-hmm. and I, I think maybe craft is the bridge between create and make i don't know I'm I'm definitely spitballing here. That's okay. That's why we're here. (laughs) But I'm wondering if that's sort of the the mix of the two that's in the mingling of the light is this this imaginative ability that's like materially realized, right? Because they're making things, but they're not derivative things. In his letters, Tolkien refers to Feanor as the the chief artificer of Mm. the elves, which I think is a Mm -hmm. really great 
like oh, word, word and yeah. one that we don't see in the Silmarillion but I think a, yeah. right like you said it's not like he's just a maker mm-hmm. I, I like I think artificer and maker are there's a distinction oh, yeah. between the two right like if you're yeah. an artificer you're like imbuing something with a quality mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. if you're a maker you're just like creating like a dead thing yeah a dead you know static maybe you're creating an object essentially but it's right. without with it's without like sort of the spark that we mm-hmm. see in the similar the Silmarils or in the art of the elves right there's implicitly this sort of reflection of the divine yeah that comes absolutely. through absolutely it's yeah I, this is maybe like sort of sidetrack <laughs> but i'm thinking about too like in in eastern orthodox tradition like icons oh yeah. when you look at the icon you're actually looking at christ in mm-hmm. their sort of view yes and, and i can't help but think of that as sort of how the elves art is also kind of working as like this is a way in which i mean we have galadriel's hair that's like described as capturing the light we have the silmarils which contain the light so this we'll is way in which that, yeah we yeah we're but... gonna get back to that in a big way <laughs> And I know you want to talk about it, so I won't say anything more than that, but I, I'm just thinking about how art becomes a container or not even just a container, like a vehicle, a very real vehicle for, for that, however we want to talk about heavenly or divine or just the mingling of these two otherwise split things. Yeah, and maybe this is a good time to talk about kind of like Melian and like the mm-hmm. light of the light of um Amon like in her face yeah right like because we talked you know like you said I love the image of like art like being a reflection of the divine which we see all throughout Mm -hmm. like human history right I think in the first or second episode we talked about you know the way that churches were built was like a reflection of kind of like the divine geometry (laughs) like right the divine geometry of God (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the kind of places where we see sort of the most intense, I don't know, kind of reflection of the divine is places where the light is captured. So the Silmarils, like you said, Galadriel's hair. And then we get this beautiful image. This chapter on Thingol and Melian is so short, but there's this beautiful image about the light, the light of Amon being in her face. And I think there's a lot to discuss here. Aaron, if you want to kick us off, you did a deep dive. (laughs) Aaron and I both did like separate deep dives. And the light. into other poetry and light and mm-hmm. uh Aaron you can kick it off if you want sure. with your discussion of the pearl okay yeah so when I I was also struck by this image from this chapter um for similar reasons as, as I think you're gonna say when we t- get to your section about Dante but um the the pearl yeah so the, is by the Gawain poet it's one of the works that Tolkien translated along with Gawain um the sort of shortest gloss possible on this is that we have this sort of dreamer figure. He's our speaker in this poem. Um, his daughter has died and he's mourning her and he falls asleep essentially in sort of out in nature. He falls asleep. He, he thinks he's awake, but he's still dreaming and he sort of stumbles into wow. this eternal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a certain romantic po- poem mm. that we might also talk about. Yeah. Later. It might. Go on. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so he, he, he's basically, you know, dreaming awake, essentially he's awake at this point and he's in this eternal space. He sort of crosses over and he encounters this woman who it's not clear is maybe like an adult form of his daughter. That's sort of my reading of it, but that might not be the correct reading, but in any event, she basically shows him the heavenly city. Like she grants him access to, to the after to the heaven, essentially a brief access to it. Um, and there's a line that is very similar to the line from, from Tolkien. So this little line in Tolkien is in the face of Melian, he beheld the light of Amon as in an unclouded mirror. And in that light, he was content. Um, and in the Pearl, I won't read the whole section from the Pearl, but there is a line where he's, he's looking sort of across. They're like divided by a stream, basically. So they're looking across the stream at each other. And he says, you know, a marvel more did my mind amaze. I saw beyond that border bright from a crystal cliff, the lucent rays and beams and splendor lift their light. A child abode there at its base. She wore a gown of glistening white, a gentle maid of courtly, courtly grace. Erewhile, I had known her well by sight. Um, he looks at her and he says, the longer I looked at her, I knew her more. Um, but, and this is all, this is Tolkien's translation of Pearl. Um, so it's hard to not see him as kind of drawing on this imagery of sort of this 
divine intercessor figure who appears on the scene and grants a mortal <laughs> access to what the immortal world is like, but it's, it can only be an encounter, right? Like the dreamer eventually leaves this place and he's mortal again. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. become immortal in this encounter. So his nature remains the same, but he has this, this sort of brief glimpse um, of what, what the world beyond looks like the heavenly city. And I, and I think that's something that's happening in, and I think a couple of these chapters actually in different points where sort of mortals are encountering the divine through the light <laughs> that we've been talking about since we basically started. Well, and I think too, the line here at the end, and the longer I looked, I mm-hmm. knew her more, the more I, the more I that face so fair surveyed. So, you know, your reading of the prose that this is his daughter, maybe it's not but like why does he know her Mm -hmm. and is it because he's seeing this kind of like divine light and like we know is there like kind of a like we know our creator Mm -hmm. and like seeing Mm -hmm. that contents us and is that also what Thingol is seeing in the face of Melian is the like light of our origin Luvatar right Mm -hmm. your origin story yeah it's the originary light though right I mean yeah Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. I love that in in that light he was content. Yeah, like yeah. that's. I keep saying there's like these beautiful passages, and again, this is one of those. I think this is like maybe Tolkien being like a little romantic. He does have like sweet little nods to his wife. Uh, yes, yeah. kind of throughout, and I think this is like one of those, and like the contentment of looking on the face of one you love, but then also the contentment that comes from like oh also. Mm-hmm. Lucky me, when I look at her face, I also see the face of God. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it, right. It makes me think of actually, um, I don't know how familiar you are with Les Mis. There's a line at the very end that is that says, to love another person is to see the face of God, mm-hmm. which I think is also kind of what's happening here. Like Thingol is immediately smitten with Melian and she has this light in her face, but I think, I mean, they talk about how he just stands there and like gazes upon her for ages. Yeah. Like he is drinking in this beatific vision. What's interesting too, is that it's a mirror image, the implication as well. So like he's seeing <laughs> his divinity in her divinity. Mm-hmm. And it makes that interesting too, that he then is kind of obsessed with looking at her essentially. It's because she reveals something about him. It's not just that he loves her, but like, is he sort of able to see the divinity in himself? And is that also appealing mm-hmm. in that And like he doesn't, too? And then he does, this allows him to like stay and like be at peace, Mm -hmm. right? He, strangely enough, is one of the only elves that doesn't, he's not affected as much by the fall because he is at peace with just like this reflected light from Melian. He doesn't need to go to Valinor and like experience the real thing. He's got enough right here. But talking about this reflection, I went and did a deep dive of Purgatorio, um, specifically the end, like the end canto, it's canto 31 in Purgatorio. So Dante is in the Garden of Eden and he is encountering Beatrice, who will be, um, Virgil has left him, Beatrice will be his guide through paradise because Virgil cannot enter heaven because he wasn't baptized. (laughs) Sorry. But anyway, so in, in Canto 31, Dante gazes into the eyes of Beatrice. Um, and these are, I'm going to read these uh, couple stanzas. The translation is, A thousand desires hotter than any flame bound my eyes to those shining eyes, which still stayed fixed upon the griffin. Even as the sun in a mirror, not otherwise, the twofold beast shone forth in them, now with the one, now with the Uh, its other nature. So the griffin is representative of Christ here. So it's the same, it's the exact same kind of imagery as in the face of Melian, if we want to think of this kind of reflected mirror image of, you know, divinity within Mm -hmm. her and just like in the pearl. So Dante's looking in the eyes of Beatrice and he sees this griffin and through her eyes, he's actually able to see the true nature of Christ, which is God and man. That's Mm -hmm. what that duality is. And there's actually, I think, to even kind of further like tighten up this connection of these like 
divine reflections in, in the face of a woman. <laughs> a few stanzas earlier, Beatrice's handmaids are speaking with Dante and they refer to this reflection that Dante will see in her eyes as the joyous light. So it's like only in gazing upon these faces that these men are able to encounter the divine. But I think too, this relates to what you mentioned about, did you talk about, mentioned the nightingale earlier you mentioned? I we, think. we mentioned it briefly, but we didn't, yeah. Yeah, so I think this kind of dovetails mm. nicely into kind of this discussion of Melian's sort of special power is her connection to the nightingale, which honestly, good for you, Aaron, because despite having reread my thesis this week, <laughs> I legitimately didn't even think of Keats. It's been a long week, everybody. Okay. I haven't had time to think about anything. I thought yeah. I was going to put this in the notes and you'd be like, well, yeah, duh. Well, sure. Not well. I read your notes and I was like, oh, duh. But I was saying it to myself. <laughs> yeah. So, right. A big part of this section, in addition to the light of her face, is that she's associated with the Nightingale and Nightingale song. And um, I, I think there is a connection here between what the light is doing and what the nightingale song is is signaling they're kind of operating in the same way to signal us as readers that there is this sort of collapsing of the distance between the divine and the mortal or the divine and the human that's happening with mm-hmm. her presence in this moment oftentimes we associate the nightingale with mourning mm-hmm. but it is also sort of a, a bird of passage it's it's a it's something that connects disparate parts of experience whether it's mm-hmm. emotional experience um, or sort of awakening to nature and beauty. Like it, it, Coleridge has a poem about the nightingale too, which is actually not at all about death. It's about sort of being awoken to the beauty of the nature around you. Um, which, Ke- you know. I was going to say, Keats, Ode to a Keith, Nightingale, yeah, everybody. <laughs> yes, a lot of it is about death, uh, but it's also, mm-hmm. it singest of summer in full-throated ease. It certainly does awaken Keats to the beauty of the nature around him. Right. It's a reminder to be mindful of it, right? Yes. So again, it's just another instance where we have a symbol, and I know Tolkien hates allegory, but we have a symbol <laughs> that is alerting us to the fact that, you know, these women in these te- in this text really do kind of mediate between different planes of existence, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are these sort of celestial figures that come down to earth and reconnect this these sort of severed beings with with a glimpse of that mm-hmm. immortality and i think too you know i i mentioned you know thingle has a name change mm-hmm. he uh is elway and then at the very end of this chapter oh, that's right okay it says the sindar they were named the gray elves the elves of the twilight and king gray mantle was he elu thingle in the tongue of that land Amelian was his queen wiser than any child of middle earth Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talk about how this nightingale is kind of connected with death. And I mentioned earlier that he sort of has this rebirth. And it is, I think it, you know, he dies to life as Elway and then is almost mm-hmm. like reborn as Thingol, a new person, a new elf. And I do think of that kind of, you know, I'm I'm literally like have I'm looking at Ode to a Nightingale now. Um <laughs> and like he there's the language in the Silmarillion is that he falls under her spell Melian's spell same thing you know if you read Ode to a Nightingale mm-hmm. if you've never read Ode to a Nightingale by the way Hit pause. read it right now <laughs> please for me it's short and then send me an email about how much you love it <laughs> and if you don't love it just don't send stay an email. quiet yeah um if you don't even want to read it there's a great uh, recording of Benedict Cumberbatch doing a reading it's wonderful and if you really want to read it, read uh, Tender is the Night by uh, Fitzgerald, uh, which is an entire novel about this poem. Yep. And it's bad. What? Get out of here. I don't like Tender You're the canceled. Night. I'm shutting also, down the pod. We're done. <laughs> we are sundered. Aaron and yes. I are sundered from each other forever. <laughs> yeah. So he talks about being under her spell. And if you read this poem from beginning to mm-hmm. end, truly, this is what is happening to Keats. He is under the spell of this nightingale to what ends read my thesis just kidding don't read my thesis but uh yeah so he falls under the spell of this bird and truly like he doesn't die but he does wish to die and 
and doesn't view death as like a, a terrible thing if mm-hmm. if you know he's dying listening to the song of a nightingale then so be it he also refers to it as uh immortal bird which obviously melian is immortal like I don't think he's, I don't think uh, Tolkien was sitting down and was like, mm, Melian, Nightingale, Oh, to Nightingale, great. I'm going to write this, I'm going to write this chapter. But it is interesting, these, these connections yeah. that certainly I did not expect to see, nor did yeah. I expect to be able to make. So it is very exciting for me, a real nerd for John Keats, to see this, uh, this happening. Well, do you want to take a little break? I think that kind of brings us to the end of this section. We'll take a little break and then we come back. We can talk a little bit about the birth of Feanor, our our big fiery, fiery friend. okay we're back back. and we're going to talk about another another lady with a name that starts with m that sounds honestly a lot like melian Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about muriel muriel is the mother of feanor feanor is the son of finway finway was one of the elves that went to valinor so feanor is this kind of, I mean, he's kind of like a prince, let's say. He's kind of like a like an elvish prince. Mm-hmm. He, as we mentioned, he's kind of the chief artificer of the elves. He crafts things. He is also kind of like a, he's kind of like a da Vinci. Like he does create his own system of writing. Yeah, he's like forges things. He's creating gems. He's creating writing. He's very strong-willed. His name means spirit of fire, which is very, very cool. He's the total package. And yeah, he's tall and raven-haired. So (laughs) you want to know who my crush is uh, in the Silmarillion? It might be Feanor. But his mother, Muriel, who is also called Serende, because heaven forbid she have one name, basically gives birth to Feanor and then is like I'm tired of living she wants to be released from the labor of living but she can't because she's an elf and elves can't die so she goes to the halls of Mandos well that's not true she goes to the gardens of Lorien and lays down to sleep and then her spirit departs to the halls of Mandos This is after she said, it is indeed unhappy, said Muriel, and I would weep if I were not so weary. Very sad, but also insane because the language that Tolkien uses really does make it seem like Feanor just like saps his mother of her life force. He writes, but in the bearing bearing of her son, Muriel was consumed in spirit and body, and after his birth, she yearned for release from the labor of living. And when she had named him, she said to Finway, never again shall I bear child, for strength that would have nourished the life of many has gone forth into Feanor. Whoa! Aaron's eyes just went crazy. This is like... This is like, for me, like a I consumed my twin in utero kind of stuff. It's up there. <laughs> I I sapped my mother of her life force. <laughs> He's just so perfect and creative. How did, how did you get so cool? <laughs> he so got talked, it from his mama. He did. He literally got it from his mama. <laughs> he stole it. And so, yeah, she becomes the first elf to die she might be the only elf to willingly die i mean an elf can like retire to the halls of mandos if they want to but like i think the implication is they go there when they're they're, they're, like killed and then they can come back if they want she was like i'm done i'm not coming back i'm out of here bye everybody so Tolkien has some big thoughts. It's like a sentence in his letters, but it's like big thoughts on, on Muriel. He kind of throws her under the bus. So he writes, 
In Elvish legends, there is a record of a strange case of an elf, Muriel, that tried to die, which had disastrous results leading to the fall of the high elves. We love to blame a woman, don't we? It's really great. If there's one around, gotta blame her for something. Point that finger, baby. Yeah, so there's, first of all, he's totally implicating Muriel in the fall of the elves. Mm-hmm. Like, not totally Feanor's fault. You know, she tried to die. And the and the text of the Silmarillion does back this up. Um, there's a few passages where it says... In those unhappy things, which later came to pass, here again, we have some like a little like there's bad things going to happen. In those unhappy things, which later came to pass and in which Feanor was the leader, many saw the effect of this breach within the house of Finway, judging that if Finway had endured his loss and been content with the fathering of his mighty son, the courses of Feanor would have been otherwise and great evil would have been prevented. But interesting that in his letters, Tolkien is like, it's Muriel's fault. But the text is almost like Finway should have done like a better job of being a dad. <laughs> Maybe Feanor just didn't have good parents in general. Mm-hmm. Sounds that way. But this goes back to something I think we talked about. Maybe we didn't. Maybe I just read it and committed it to memory. But this idea that like whenever there's an obsession with going against kind of the natural course of how death is supposed to happen. So for elves, It's technically not for men. It's going to. (laughs) Whenever there's there's a member of either race who's like, I don't want that fate, to use the word. Bad things happen. And I think that's kind of like, I don't think Tolkien is maybe necessarily blaming like Muriel, like the person, because we see this again in the fall of Numenor. It's the exact opposite, right? The men get obsessed with immortality they try to go to Valinor they know that's not allowed Numenor is consumed by the ocean and you know they're no longer a great civilization here it's the opposite Muriel decides to die Mm -hmm. rather than live forever and then this leads to the you know darkening of the trees and the capture of the Silmarils and the sundering of the elves even more and so these are kind of like our pivotal like moments right are these deaths not deaths Mm -hmm. we'll call them and Tolkien did say in his letters that these books if they're about anything are about kind of this preoccupation with death Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think this is actually I mean it's it's one passage where I think you know it's a few paragraphs the beginning of a early chapter that frankly isn't all that interesting. I think it's an area where you could easily kind of gloss over it. But obviously what Tolkien is saying in his letters, and if we actually take the time to like think about the, let's just say the mechanics of mortality in this world, these are, this is actually like the crux, right? This is actually Mm. where the first domino falls. It's not actually like Feanor forging the Silmarils it's not Melkor being unchained all those things like happen and they play into what happens but it's actually this choice to die by an elf that goes against nature right it's this like aggressive split with Mm -hmm. what the nature of an elf should be that causes all these other events Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's an analog in the Melkor unchaining to what you're describing, which is this sort of turn against what nature or order. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the, basically on the last page of chapter six, not the, at the right before the last full paragraph, they're talking about the judgment of Manwe and the fact that even though Olmo and Tokus say, you know, don't let Melkor go, he still does. And it says, for those who will defend authority against rebellion must not themselves rebel. So I think there's this idea of the responsibility to make the right choice, which is maybe to, to not make a choice at all or to sort of go along with the order of things. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. But in the case of this choice to die, it is a disruption of a natural order in the same way that if Olmo and Tolkien had 
went gone against Manway, that would have been another rupture against a hierarchical order. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have all these kind of systems of, of ordering and of causality, I guess, within this world. And like, yeah, all these things. And as you said, with the Numenorians too, it's like a disruption of, of that, that has disastrous consequences, even if it's just one person as mm-hmm. it is in this case. Right. Right. Cause with Numenor, it's like a whole kind of like a society cult, yeah. essentially. But yeah, this, this instance, it's one person. But I think if we think of, first of all, there aren't that many elves, right? At this mm-hmm. point. I mean, there, I think there are plenty, like elves well, are we just like, don't. <laughs> inbreeding like crazy, but. Gross. Disgusting. Yeah. Ew. Pigs. Uh, like the Habsburgs just giving each other huge jaws. Aragorn and uh, Arwen are related distantly. Gross. That's where we get the Habsburg chin. Mm-hmm. These stories are true, folks. They are. You can Google them. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry. I threw it off with the Habsburgs. No, it's okay. Oh, so like uh, the world is not like it, crazy populated mm-hmm. at this point. You know, she's only one elf making this choice, but, you know, there's not a ton. There's not like a million other elves in the world so she's just like you know one candle to snuff out mm-hmm. well i wonder if i think it would still matter even in that i think so again it's going against it's, nature yeah. i mean i think that's an important theme for yes. Tolkien, like the like you said like the order and kind of the natural way things are supposed to happen um, yeah. kind of trump everything yeah i mean her actions while not as drastic or as like not directly evil like they do mirror what melkor Mm -hmm. does in this sort of changing of the nature of things Mm -hmm. in the world in ways that they're not supposed to be yeah changed though i do think you know obviously tolkien is placing a lot of the onus on muriel's Mm -hmm. decision here and like we said you know we can read this as kind of like this is the pivotal point where things start to kind of cascade out, but things have been set up, right? Like we can't just blame her. Mm -hmm. The Valar decided to like bring Melkor back to Valinor. They also decided to bring the elves to Valinor. Like they gathered all the key players to them and kind of set up the, they set up Mm -hmm. the dominoes to go back to that metaphor now one is falling and they are going to have to deal with the consequences but because of the way that they're like powers work they can't really deal with the consequences they need to let the consequences play out Yeah. yeah because that's the natural order right like that is once a thing starts it has to continue on its natural course it can't be affected by that higher being again if we want to go back to aquinas like it if, if a thing has free will and it makes a choice and it's got to keep making the like next, <laughs> like it yeah. keeps going down the line of choices without being affected by, you know, Manwe or Tolkis or whomever. Mm-hmm. Talk about that for a while, but <laughs> going back to, to Melian and something we mentioned earlier, kind of this feminine creative power and Fanor is an artificer. So I talked about how she kind of like sapped or he sapped her life mm-hmm. from her essentially. And I wonder if that's what makes him so powerful as a creator, as a sub creator is because he imbued some sort of something from his mother. It's, it's not clear exactly what it is. I mean, his name means spirit of fire. It seems to imply that he has somehow taken like some of her mm-hmm. spirit from her. What exactly that means, I'm not sure. But I think, again, it really emphasizes this idea that like there is something inherently more creative, like powerfully creative about the feminine mm-hmm. for Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Because, because Feanor needed that like he he needed that whether he took it or it was given to him that's something that allowed him to become as powerful as he did was stealing away his mama's 
will to live. I mean, yeah, it does seem to have taken sort of some sort of spark out of her. Um, yeah. He then, yeah, it turns to talk about old and gray and full of sleep. Well, I strongly identify. You you had a baby that sapped your will to live. Yes. It was called my dissertation. <laughs> I, I yes, I, I do think if anything, this is a, a, another point of emphasis for the the idea that women do have a generative power in Tolkien's universe that is largely inaccessible to men, except in like these extreme instances where you have the child who literally somehow as you said, either becomes imbued with it or like absorbs it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, becomes sort of a new vessel for it. And it's not really clear why this happens in this particular instance either. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but... frustratingly. Mm-hmm. Right, because this, is this like supposed to happen? Is it faded? I don't know. Yeah, and if it is, it, I mean, it seems like it must not be if, if Tolkien's saying that this is like a strange case that shouldn't have happened. But it is interesting that. Yeah, it's interesting to, to know, like, was it supposed to happen? Has this happened at other times? Mm-hmm. And I think also this question of did she freely, was this like freely given or was this taken from her? Oh, yeah, that's you not know, clear like, either. Did she have knowledge of what was happening or was like baby, baby Feanor? in utero slurping up her energy mm, this embryonic fluid (laughs) like got a lot of your milkshake i don't don't know maybe another another question for another day and or episode our listeners if you have theories please yeah honestly yeah because this i i you know this book better than i do so i don't know if this is something that we will return to at all with feanor okay it's just like a one-off like he sapped his mom's life juice i think so (laughs) i mean (laughs) to be candid it's been a while since i've read it but like i don't think they bring it up again (laughs) and i can't think of like an analog off the top of my head for this from like myth I tried. I okay. I looked. I mean, I think it it does make me think of like the birth of a god, kind of, mm-hmm. where like there's always something kind of inherently. I don't want to say there's something inherently violent about the birth of Feanor, but there is a death that results from it, mm-hmm. and so there's uh, like there's there's violence. I think with with births of gods, like in Greek mythology, especially like. Kronos devouring all his children and like Rhea having to squirrel Zeus away, you mm-hmm. know, and till he could get big enough to kill his daddy. <laughs> There's no, I couldn't think of or find like a direct connection of like, okay, mm-hmm. here's an instance where in literature, some, someone was yeah, other than, like you said, Rosemary's baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that Maybe was after uh, it came after. That was inspired actually by Rosemary's baby. Oh, was inspired okay. by this passage. I'm sure it was. <laughs> I mean, you could like big brain this a little bit and say that it's like a a subversive commentary on motherhood, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is, but you certainly could. Mm-hmm. But like <laughs> once she gives birth, like she can't be this creative force anymore mm-hmm. because her creative forces has become strictly bound up in the biological. Right. Because like, that's and one of the reasons she's tired. She's like, I don't want to give birth to however many more kids that Finn might want. Sorry. Sorry, honey. Yeah. He's like, Shops I want closed. seven more kids. And, he, and she's like, yeah. Cause you don't have to push him out. You sicko. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this, this podcast is now explicit. That's uh, okay. I mean, that's how babies are born. Everybody. If you didn't know, yeah. if you didn't um, know, hit pause. Go read a biology textbook. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't but know. yeah, well, and because like, right, if we've talked about like the the feminine power mm-hmm. is this like generative right creation, you know, that's her creation. Yeah. Then you right. know, she has she has given the world her ultimate creation, which is Feanor. So in a way, is Feanor a sub? creation like is is he muriel's sub creation and then she's like okay i'm done that's it i created all i can create right there's 
a literal like, vessel for him. Right. Like he yeah. is like the perfect, like the perfect subcreation. And so she just can't give any more. Huh. Yeah, I could buy that. Thank you. I could, could too. Buy that. We hope you listeners at home can also buy that. Or if you can't, email us. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, us why you can't. And we'll talk about it on the pod. If you have any questions, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, you know, if you're bored and just want to say, hey, always reach out. We're always happy to answer questions. This is a confusing book. Uh, we're confused by it frequently. We're frustrated by it often. And I have some concerns that Aaron is going to throw it out the window and never come back to record another episode. Nevertheless, we will be back in two weeks. Yeah. When we will be discussing the next couple chapters. Yeah, what are we discussing? Do, do we know which couple chapters yet? If not, that's um, okay. I don't want to put you on the nope, spot. I think we'll be discussing chapter seven mm-hmm. and chapter eight. All right. Our big boys. These are our big, 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 fatty, fat boys. There are things that happen in these chapters. Literally, chapter eight is a longer chapter, I think, than we've seen. Wow, chap- it'd be hard chapter- to find shorter ones than we've chapter seen. Chapter seven, I mean, chapter seven's a bit okay. longer than any we've read yeah, so it's far. Yeah, it's like eight whole pages. And that's it for today. It. We can't wait to talk about more of the Silmarillion. And... We hope you are all well and healthy and keep listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Songs and Tales, A Literary Guide to Middle-Earth is produced by Clara McHugh and Aaron Babcock. Intro and outro music is by Joe McHugh. The podcast artwork is by Jenny Calais. You can find us on Twitter at Songs and Tales Pod, on Instagram at Songs and Tales Pod, and can email us at, you guessed it, Songs and Tales Pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm still thinking about my buns, but I guess we can start. Oh my gosh, Aaron, stop talking about your butt.